Welcome to Audacity Works, a podcast inspired by and dedicated to the working artist, the creative entrepreneur, and generally doing the damn thing. This exists on the premise that the world belongs to those who have the audacity to believe that their lives have value. This is for you. Welcome to Audacity Works. I am your host, Rachel Strickland, and this is episode number 33, in which we're going to talk about imposter syndrome again. Conversations around imposter syndrome and the experience of it have colored my coaching career, um, not to mention my personal life, my my own artistic career uh, from the beginning. And it has become kind of a specialty of mine, just because that is something that comes up for so many people that I work with. And it has nothing to do with skill level or experience. And it's not often that I hear a refreshing perspective on it. Uh, it is very often that I hear bad advice about it. And I've talked about that on the podcast before. And if you are looking for like actionable things to do, if you're experiencing uh, imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, as I'm going to start calling it, and I'll explain why in a moment, then I will link that episode in the show notes so that it's easy for you to find because those are all things that you can do. And it wasn't even on this podcast. It was on um, one of my favorite people's um, podcast, which is Dr. Shante Colfield, the movement maestro. We talked about it uh, last year and we had like this epic talk. It was over an hour, but um, oh my God, it was so much fun. But uh, that episode does have actionable items for you to do if you find yourself experiencing imposter phenomenon. So Rachel, why are you suddenly calling it imposter phenomenon? I'm so glad you asked. Let's talk about it. Um, so it, imposter syndrome was coined. Sorry, it wasn't actually coined. It, it, it's more like it was identified and it wasn't called imposter syndrome. It was called imposter phenomenon. It was never meant to be pathologized. It's just become pathologized for reasons that we will touch on very shortly. Uh, but one of the reasons I do want to make this shift um, one is because words matter and calling something a syndrome identifies it as a like a medical um, diagnosis, which it's not. It's But it is something that people experience. And I also want to take a second here um, to disagree fervently with a whole bunch of people who are like, imposter syndrome doesn't exist. Thank you for invalidating the experience of so many people. Um, now, it might not be something that uh, a person individually experiences, but that does not mean that other people are not experiencing it. Uh, I first got salty about this um, when a, a friend of mine sent me an article uh, written by some dude, I don't know, uh, about how imposter syndrome isn't real, because if you're competent, then you just go and do the thing and you don't experience that. And she was like, what do you think of this? I'm like, I think that is a load of sodden horseshit. That's cool if you don't experience it. That's all right. I personally do not uh, have a fear of the number 13. Uh, in fact, I actually quite like it, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, Triskaidekaphobia does not exist. It's just made up because I personally don't experience it. Like, come on now. So the reason that this came up is because one of my audacious ones, the great Carly Shuna, what's up, Carly? 
shared an article in the Audacity Project alumni Facebook group, which is the only reason that I'm on Facebook anymore. Um, And I'll remain there just because it's so awesome and full of amazing people. And this article was from Glamour, and it was written by Rejma Sujani. And the author goes on to recount um, a commencement speech that she gave at Smith College this year about imposter syndrome and what's wrong with it and, and what's wrong with how we talk about it. Um, and part of that problem is that we call it a syndrome, um, but it's not our problem. So let me back up a second. She likens it to uh, another medical diagnosis called bicycle face which became uh, prevalent right around the time that uh, women were learning how to ride bicycles. I mean, everyone was learning how to ride bicycles, but uh, only women got bicycle face. And this was in the 1890s, but, you know, obviously it wasn't a thing. It wasn't an actual diagnosis. It's just the face that someone makes when riding a bicycle, which was apparently fine for a man, but obviously not for a woman. Oh my God, you have bicycle face. And now we can... We can look back at this uh, in hindsight and laugh at how ridiculous it is. But uh, also, it was done on purpose. Uh, it it wasn't a syndrome. It was a scheme. It was a strategy to scare women away from this new thing that allowed them to move freely. And what the author is basically saying is that imposter syndrome, the way we talk about it today, is the exact same strategy And rather than uh, just like go over the whole article, I'll link it in the show notes if you want to read it. It's a great read. And obviously, um, women aren't the only people who experience uh, imposter phenomenon. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, dudes don't experience it. People of all identifications don't experience it. That's clearly not true. However, uh, I being on the receiving end of uh, personal insights from hundreds and hundreds of artists over the past mm, 13 years or as long as I've been coaching and people have been confiding these things to me, uh, the overwhelming majority of people who have uh, said to me that they experience imposter phenomenon are almost to a T. Um, Women, non-binary people, trans-identifying individuals, and gay men, and that's just four. And I will say it again, an overwhelming majority. I am talking 99.9%. That doesn't mean that straight men don't experience it, but it does mean that they don't talk about it as much if they do. So that's the premise of this article, right? The the author was pointing out um, imposter phenomenon is experienced uh, very largely by uh, femme and and female identifying people, not because that they didn't have the skills or the experience to not experience imposter phenomenon, but because they were operating in a world that was literally not designed for them. And when you operate in a space that wasn't designed for you, you know you can feel that. And this kind of sent me on a rabbit hole. uh, And I was on residency and I had nothing but time to indulge my curiosity. So I started reading and um, obsessively compulsively buying uh, articles and such on my Kindle because the Kindle is an enabler. And I was just, I was looking for evidence, uh, uh, 
I, I wanted some more evidence behind like, okay, but how much is the world like just not designed with everyone in mind when it so clearly is uh, not <laughs> designed to be equitable? So here is what I found. Uh, one, in the 1930s, there was a, a very influential Swiss architect named Le Corbusier. I'm so sorry, I'm not saying the name correctly. Uh, but he had a large hand in basically redesigning the world post-war. And the standard that he used to design this world was a mythical six-foot-tall white policeman. I'm not making this up. I corroborated it. Many of these measurements became standard and are used all over the world. If you live in a city, the chances are that you are living in a playground designed for someone not your sized. Overwhelming majority of possibilities there. And then let's talk about um, the thermostats in office buildings. The standard office temperature was developed in the 1960s around the metabolic resting rate of the average 40-year-old 154-pound male which is wrong when it comes to the metabolic rates of most women uh, by up to 37 or sorry, 35%, which means that most offices are five degrees too cold for anyone who's not a 154 pound man, uh, which is why you see women trying to work wrapped up in blankets, like shivering behind their laptops. I just thought that was bananas. I had no idea that thermostats uh, were sexist. Who knew? You learn something more every day. And uh, let's talk about when it comes to car safety, because uh, if you're a woman, um, you are 47% more likely to be seriously injured, 17% more likely to die in a car crash than a man. And that's because the crash dummies uh, are male. They're designed for that that like same standard, basically six foot tall, this much weight, dude, to be precise, um, five feet, nine inches tall, uh, and weighing 176 pounds. Cars were designed around this. And it's only been recently that like a female prototype of a crash test dummy was designed. Uh, but it, then they only put it in the passenger seat. Did you hear what I just said? They weren't even being tested as drivers, <laughs> but only as passengers. And of course, there was like no pregnant female test dummy. Um, I think that some things are like there's there's lobbying going on and, and change being enacted there, but not not long enough ago to make one feel super comfortable. And let's not even go there with medical research. Um, yeah. Okay, maybe we will go there just a little bit. Uh, So there's a thing called reference man. And reference man is a white man uh, between the ages of 25 to 30 who weighs about 70 kilos, so 154 pounds, and is six feet tall or 180 centimeters. That's reference man. They now call it standard person. This was introduced in 1975, and the concept was uh, initially devised to simplify calculations on radiation exposure, uh, because they needed some kind of standard, so obviously, reference man, uh, and even though it was designed for 
you know, uh, calculations on radiation exposure, it went on to be used very consistently in research models of nutrition, pharmacology, population, and toxicology. It's kind of a lot. It's kind of a lot of stuff. The more I read, the harder I laughed. And the reason I was laughing was not because it was funny, but um, as I learned in Psychology 101, when we don't know what else to do, when we're presented with information, we don't know what to do with it, we laugh. I was laughing a lot. Um, Here's just a couple more examples because they're hilarious. Uh, Voice recognition software. A lot of women were having trouble um, using their voice recognition software. um, But when they lowered the the volume, not the volume, when they lowered the timbre of their voice and just like made it deeper, then the voice recognition software worked better. So if you're having a hard time, just lower your voice and... (laughs) Maybe then it will uh, it will recognize you as a person. And then there was this whole snafu with Siri. Um, uh, I think it's since been corrected. Not sure. Didn't corroborate that. But when Siri came out, you could be like, Siri, I've had a heart attack. And Siri would call an ambulance for you. But if you said, Siri, I've just been raped. Siri would say, I'm sorry. I don't know what that means. And can we just like not even try to grasp the the epicness of the way women are mythological in sexual media. Do you guys remember this book that came out in like the 70s? Uh, it was called, it had this hideous yellow cover and it was called Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. I found a copy of that when I was 11. Oh God, how I wish I had never found that book. It is, it is hilariously terrible. It is not accurate. It is not true. How how is this book still in print? Why have more people not talked about the flaming pile of uh, hot burning garbage that is this book? And it was written it was written by a doctor, but like he was just wrong. <laughs> he was so wrong. And, you know, people probably don't talk about it because, I don't know, it came out in like the 70s or something. And uh, who reads old um, out-of-print books? Please tell me it's out-of-print. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I did find one satisfactorily salty uh, um, article about it, but it wasn't nearly long enough. So if you want to um, read more about these things, because I know I did, uh, uh, the book that I am reading currently is called Invisible Women by Caroline Perez, and I'm really enjoying it um, and also not enjoying it, but it's definitely illuminating. So if you if you want to go, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to if you want to find that. But so I don't usually like name this many facts in a row. I have a whole page of notes. It's just those facts that I just gave you. Those are just facts. Those are just factual evidence um, to support you if you have ever had the sneaking suspicion that the world was not designed with you in mind because the world was designed for reference man. And the further you get away from reference man, be it in size, in, in ethnicity, in age, in gender, in able-bodiedness. So the more, the further you get away from that reference man baseline, the more away from home you might feel in your own world. 
And this is why conversations about accessibility are so important, because if you if you don't fit um, reference, okay, let's say, let's take the inverse. If you fit reference men, you will not have noticed any of these things. There's tons of things on this list that I didn't notice, because I'm pretty close to reference men. And the ignorance of my privilege is to never have noticed what life is like for someone who is five feet tall. I've never had the lived experience of noticing that a camera won't focus on my dark skin tone because I don't have a dark skin tone. So in summation, um, let's just repeat some phrases. Is it imposter phenomenon or is it misogyny? Is it imposter phenomenon or is it racism? Is it imposter phenomenon or is it transphobia? And as a result of not having asked these questions before myself, um, the, the thing that I never liked about how imposter syndrome and imposter phenomenon was spoken about was that it, it always ended up being the individual's problem. Like, well, something's wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. This, you're not reference man. And you picked up on that. So no, uh, it's not a moral failing on your part or a failing at all. If you've experienced the sensation of thinking, I'm not, I'm not good enough to be in this space, even when you were. And perhaps even just by calling that out and acknowledging it, we, <laughs> we can use that information uh, to, to, to take with us into those rooms. And to bring it back to the original article, the author goes on to say, like, well, so what do we do about it? Well, the, the answer is, you know, ride your damn bicycle. Uh, so if it's any comfort, um, the advice is still the same uh, before and after acknowledging all of these things, which is just to take action. It is the same advice that I've been giving to artists for years and it's the same advice that I'll keep giving them. Action is the cure for what ails you. It doesn't mean that you won't experience it anymore. It doesn't mean that suddenly imposter phenomenon is never going to happen to you. But like, really, your action is the thing that matters most. And bravely and boldly taking action uh, in a world that was not designed for you. And you know, none of this is revolutionarily new, like nothing that, you know, look at the dates on things that I have been telling you about today. It's not old, or, or sorry, it's not, it's not brand new news, like it's known. Um, but I wasn't aware of a lot of it. And now that I am more aware, I'm seeing it everywhere. And I'm also seeing how accessibility improves things for everyone. Like, you know, ramps onto the sidewalk that were designed for uh, people with mobility issues and people in wheelchairs. Like, how many, how many parents pushing a child in a stroller have been like, oh, thank God, these are here. And closed captions, which were developed for the hearing impaired. Like, how many of us watch movies with the captions on anyway, just because we don't want to miss what's said? I'm like, okay, is that just me? I do it all the time. Okay, well... Sorry, I um I'm talking with my hands and I totally just bitch slapped the microphone. I think I'm going to leave that in there and just a little bit of flavor. Uh so that is my salty sermon today. Um I hope that you are taking action and doing whatever the hell you want to do. 
Thank you very much for spending these 20 minutes with me. Uh, If you have something to say, I would love to hear what you have to say. You can find me on Instagram at Rachel Strickland Creative or on Patreon at Rachel Strickland Creative. Special, wonderful thank you to my amazing patrons who make this possible. Thank you for being here. Until next time, don't go back to sleep.